millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome. Hello, hello, hello and welcome Who's to the podcast. Who's your lady friend? Who's a little lady by yourself? That'll be you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm Gary Bain and I'm once more at Peter's beautiful home in sunny... Londinium. Londinium, indeed. Uh, what are we doing today, Pete? We're doing uh, 16th Dormite <laughs> Infantry again, as if someone had a book out. Uh, and it's the advance on Naples and river crossings. Mm. And uh, I'm afraid this is another one of those ones with a lot of tough fighting, so there's not going to be much humour, I'm afraid. Hence, we've got it all over with with my lovely singing. Now, just before we start, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, the lovely Matt <laughs> Uh, is in London at the moment and we've been out for a, a very salubrious evening with him and we're going out for another one and uh, he remarked he was quite surprised we were still doing the podcast. He did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fol- I didn't followed expect by, Followed by, please stop. <laughs> it's, uh, it's strange. It's, it's not quite what the reaction we were hoping for. Not from the boss. We were hoping for, lads! You've been doing all this for nothing, but I finally decided to remunerate you in the manner to which you might be expecting to be remunerated. And he did. He gave us a 20% increase on zero. <laughs> anyway, as I said, we've got serious stuff. So where are we? Well, well, Gary, well, well, you've heard the expression, see Naples and die, haven't you? Uh, yeah, it's quite a worrying slogan, really. It is, if you're going to Naples, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but why is Naples important? Come on. Well, the capture of uh, the major port... That's Naples. ...loomed large in the minds of the Allied commanders. For logistical reasons, the capture of such a major port was essential. Absolutely essential. Uh, and on 23rd of September, the 46th Division was ordered, which is what the uh, 139 Brigade, which is what the 16th DLI are in, was ordered to clear away through the passes north of Salerno, where la- in our last episode, we, we, we or last episodes, we discussed the landing there, uh, and that would allow the 7th Armoured Division to break through the hills and, uh, and onto the Naples Plain. Wow. And that was 23rd September what year? 1943. I do apologise, Gary. I, I presumed all our listeners were so uh, up, to, up to the mark. Now, after some really tough fighting, by the night of 25th September, the 46th Division had managed to overcome the German defences on the other side of the Vietri Defile. Now, that, that, uh, this is one thing I would point out. People say, well, there's no point buying book. Aye, no point how much? No point buying book, because it's all in Pete and Gary's lovely podcast. Well, that's a whole chapter, that bit. Uh, uh, but we can't do it all, can we, Gary? No. Now, the divisional commander... Who's he, that? He seemed very pleased, and that was Major General John Hawksworth, who was clearly at the headquarters of the 50, uh, 46th Division, and he said this... Not only have we opened the door, we've torn it off its bloody hinges. Now, now to it is Michael Caine. Not only have we opened the door, but we've torn it off its bloody hinges. That was a very good Michael Caine accent. 
He's only meant to blow the bloody doors off. It does sound a bit like that, doesn't it? It does. <clears throat> so the tanks and lorried infantry, the 7th Armoured Division, they, they, they break through onto the Naples plane on the 28th of September. Uh, what happens to the 16th DLI then? Well, they get a... <coughs> oh, God, it's the emotion. Uh, uh, it's finished? Can I carry on? Yeah, sorry. Excellent. Uh, well, oh, they, oh. <coughs> they then have a period in a rest camp out of the line... <coughs> Where one Ronald <coughs> Elliot noticed an amusing phenomenon. Phenomenon. And this is Private Ronald Elliot of D Company. Well, I, I love this quote. <laughs> I've always loved Latrine's quotes. Ronald said this. You are drawn to Latrine's. I am, frequently. If you're in a permanent position, you have to make a, you have to make a provision for, for Latrine's. Generally dug out of the soil to a depth of about two yards and about a yard wide. They had a trestle with a big telegraph pole and you squatted on the telegraph pole and did your business. These holes were filled with lime. There, there, there was a story that our signals officer fell into one of these latrine pits. But the funniest thing was when we were there at the time that the grapes were just about ready. People were gulping grapes down out of these vineyards as fast as they could and were getting dysentery on that account. We had one of these latrine yard pits in a vineyard, so people could sit on the pole and just pick handfuls of grapes <laughs> from the vines that were just above their heads while sitting on the, the pole. We reckon that was the nearest <laughs> one could get to perpetual motion, as you're likely to see in this world. <laughs> boom, 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 boop, 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 boom, 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 boom. Thanks for that. Now, on the 6th of October, after this period of well-earned rest, the 16th DLI were transported through Naples. The streets were lined with cheering Italian civilians, but here again there was a humorous element to the Durham's triumphal procession. And once more, you're going to relate what Private Ronald Elliott says. Yeah, having said there's no humour, these two quotes are great. The battalion came through Naples on the lorries and the inhabitants came out and cheered us. It was quite funny. They pelted us with apples because they were just collecting them at the end of the season. But apples are quite hard and people were getting hurt by them. <laughs> so we threw them back again. Before we got to the end of the run through Naples, there was a battle going on between people firing apples back at the civilians. It finished up quite a conflict, truth be known. Now, the Italian campaign was not supposed to be a long, drawn-out affair. No, it wasn't, was it? No, well, they, they, the Allies had wanted they wanted a, a quick and relatively easy victory uh, uh, with Ita once Italy had dropped out of the war. Who, who would have other ideas about that? Who do you think would have other ideas? Well, the Germans clearly had other right Please, ideas. Gems. Kesselring knew that Italy was no soft underbelly, but a potential nightmare for the Allies... He planned to make best use of the Italian geography to fight them every step of the way. A spine of mountains run down the middle of Italy with a series of jagged ridges running off to left and right with deep rivers in the valleys in between. Yeah, well, that would make communications tortuous. Absolutely. There are not many good roads. Uh, a lot there's bridges, but what happens to bridges in warfare? Well, they tend to get demolished. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so you've got a series of difficult river crossings, and then you've got, after you've crossed a river, you'll have an uphill uh, struggle to, into the... It's always uphill. You, and, and what comes off ridges? Uh, spurs. Sp oh, I hate spurs. You do hate spurs. Now, Kesselring's main defensive position was called the Gustav Line. And, and that ran right across Italy from Minturno, no idea where that is, to Aterno. Well, I did know when I wrote the book, but I don't know. <laughs> the bedrock of the line was the imposing 1,700-foot Monte Cassino, which overlooked and dominated the river, uh, the Garigliano and Sangro. They're both rivery things. Um, uh, and uh, which lay in front of Monte Cassino. Um, what sort of defences had the, the Germans managed to put up? Well, there were machine gun posts and artillery positions. They'd been carved from the rock, while every village and town seemed to have been turned into a miniature fortress. Hang on a minute. I've just thought of an idea. We could use the Navy. 
Yeah, I mean, in theory, the German lines could be turned by further naval landings to the north, but the shortage of troops and military resources caused by the conflicting demands of the Normandy landings meant that this was a difficult and risky option, as was discovered in the Anzio landings of January 1944. So when they tried it, they found out why it was difficult. Because it is tempting, isn't it? You just, you know, you've got a line across Italy, well, you go a bit north of it. Uh, but it's not as easy, as is so often the case, the easy, obvious solution isn't either easy or particularly obvious. So what does, uh, now, these, this is the main defensive line, but what else did uh, the German commander Kesselring plan? Well, an additional series of defensive positions designed to delay and harass the Allies in their advance. The first of these was the Victor Line, which stretched from Termoli on the east coast to Castelvolturno in the west. In the US 5th Army sector, on the western coastal plain, it was solidly based on the Volturno River. This would be the next challenge that faced the men of the 16th yeah, DLI. Yeah, it's strange, but the 46th, you've got to remember, the 46th Division is in the uh, US 5th Army. Uh, they would be the left flank, that's the bit near which the sea... <laughs> Before you don't realise, now I have to embarrass myself. Um, so they're, they're, they, they're going to get across the Volturno. And that, why is that difficult, do you think? Why, why would that be difficult? Well, it's a flat floodplain, and of course they're under observation from the German defensive positions. Now, on 7th of October, 1943, Gary, still. <laughs> I've just made a certain. What did you do with your fingers there? I just made you? a certain gesture towards you. Well, on uh, the 7th of October. Oh. The battalion moved up by Gary Bain. from their rest positions to Villa Literno. By this time, the men had become accustomed to the German scorched earth tactics employed whenever they were forced to retreat. And this is Private George Bland of the Carrier Platoon, which was the support company. The Germans used to kill everything rather than leave it because the Italians had packed it in. Uh, uh, packed in then. He wouldn't give them an inch. He used to kill the cattle as he went back. There was always that smell, sickly smell of death wherever you went. And from now on, I think it gets pretty nasty, this whole podcast. Now, on arrival at Villa Literno, the 16th DLI found that they were to be the reserve battalion for the 139th Brigade. So who's in front of them then? Uh, that's the 5th Sherwood Foresters and the 2nd 5th Leicesters, I think. Are they fine bodies of men? Uh, absolutely fine bodies of men, but uh, they were also charged with carrying out patrols along the whole of the brigade front. So they're behind, but they're going to be the ones sending patrols forward, up right up to the Volturna? Yeah, absolutely. And these patrols commenced on the night of the 8th, 9th of October. Now, one of the things that I remember, that the, the accounts in the oral history that most... Is it thrilled or is it excited or is it horrified me? I don't know. It's a mixture of everything. There was a major incident when D Company, the 16th DLI, were ordered forward to the canal. Now, this, Gary, is just to the south of the Volturno River itself. The Germans had destroyed the bridges. So so who would sort that out? And well, that'll somebody be... that sometimes we forget. Yeah, that would be the Royal Engineers, wouldn't it? They move forward to build a Bailey Bridge. Now, to screen the bridge construction, 17 and 18 platoons of D Company were ordered to cross the canal and set up covering defensive positions. And Ronald Elliott, he was uh, sent forward to, uh, as a signaller to, to provide a wireless link right back to battalion headquarters. Now, on arrival, not any real sense of urgency, is there? And they jump down from their lorries and they unload their canvas assault boats. There's no bridge, remember? Uh, well, not much of a bridge left, and and uh, and start across. And Corporal Kenneth Laval of Seventeen Platoon D Company tells us what happened. The engineers were just on on their own putting this Bailey Bridge across. We went across in our canvas and wood assault boats. They took about six men. They had wooden bottom, canvas sides with a wooden frame at the top. I can sort of picture that. You sort of lifted them up, pushed two or three struts in position to keep them rigid, got in and paddled across the canal, which was about ten foot deep. My platoon came across and our platoon sergeant, Ray Sykes, said, as soon as you get over there, get into those trenches and take up fire positions. Now, the crossing was not that easy, as few of the men had any familiarity with rowing. Well, well often the case, isn't it? And uh, Private Ronald Elliott goes on to say this. The boats were light, but they, they, they were somewhat difficult to manoeuvre. I don't know that anybody was particularly adept at using them. We got into the boats after the usual problems about going round in circles, which one tended to do. We were going up towards the southern bank. 
We all got across, and they fanned out ahead of us with the platoons. We were in the company. We were in the company headquarters, which was close to the canal bank. We'd taken off the set—that's the wireless set—and put it down, and we're establishing communications with the base and taking our kit off. Now the two platoons began to set up firing positions across the road, stretching forward towards the Volturno. From the canal to the Volturno, right. All was still quiet, but there were a few disquieting signs that the Germans might be close by. And this is Private Robert Ellison of 18 Platoon D Company. In the distance, I observed a couple of jerrys running across the road carrying a machine gun. I passed word back to the corporal, and he just ignored it. He didn't want to know. We didn't know what we were talking about. We were blind. There's no jerrys there. Whether they'd had false information previously, I don't know. I said, there is. He wouldn't have it. He was back nearer the canal. It was his fault. I wish we'd taken it upon ourselves to fire our brain gun along the road and we might have saved the day. But we were so disciplined we daren't. At least we would have got the first shots in. Well, for whatever reason, and do you know what? We don't know. And, and, and he didn't know either, so there you go. The, the warnings are unheeded. And what happens is... Um, it's a German fighting patrol, not not a reconnaissance patrol. This is a fighting patrol. And they launch a really <coughs> terrible surprise attack. And and they, they sprang it on on the uh, the D Company before the men had any chance to dig proper slit trenches. So the men would be in the open, wouldn't they? They would. And uh, this is once more Corporal Kenneth Lovell of 17 Platoon. He keeps changing how he pronounces his name, I've noticed. <laughs> Lavelle. Lovell. Lavelle. It is Corporal Kenneth Lavelle. Lovell. <laughs> All hell broke loose. Machine guns opened at us from every bloody quarter, from behind us, from our sides, from the front. The Germans had set up a beautiful ambush. Martin's platoon, 18 platoon, got cut up and he was badly wounded. That's when he started screaming his head off like a bloody baby. We'd taken up fire positions. We opened up. We could see flashes. Brothel Baby, that's an unfortunate nickname. He was my Bren gunner. He was next to me and he got a bullet through the wrist. After a while he said to me, Here, Corporal, give us a drink, will you? I felt for my water bottle and found I'd had a burst of machine gun bullets go through it. I cut my right hand quite badly as I felt for it where the metal had been ripped to pieces. The Germans were just a few yards away. The buggers. We opened up and it was very, very dicey. Hmm. Now, they were in extremely vulnerable positions as the Germans held all the advantages, and this is Private Robert Ellison of 18th Platoon. The Jerry set up the machine gun and started firing down the road at us, didn't they? There was quite a lot of Germans came down. We had to scarper back to the canal. Running back, they were lobbing these little stun grenades, and I got quite a few shrapnel wounds on my wrist and arm. You didn't know it had happened, just a flash at the side of you. But the other lads were getting bullets in them, but fortunately, I didn't. We lost quite a lot of blokes there. It was completely flat, the whole area, like a playing field. The thing was to get back to the canal and take up a position on the canal. There wasn't enough cover just behind the embankment. The water was pretty high up. So we were stood in the canal up to, the chest, up to our chest in water. Jerry came down and he was firing on them in the canal as they were trying to get over Captain Whitehead, our second in command, was killed there. He was trying to rescue blokes in the canal. They found his body down near the sea. It floated down the canal. Corporal Lewindon and Sergeant Sykes were at the parapet of the bridge, lobbing grenades back onto the top. They killed quite a lot of Germans and saved the day. As things quietened down, we got out of the canal onto the bank. Sergeant Farrell had been mortally wounded. I was told that he had about 22 bullets in him. Blimey. <clears throat> now, many, not all, but some of the men panicked. I, I don't, you know. Some of them kept hold of their self-possession. They, 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 they knew that to cover the retreat of their men. They, they, <clears throat> but they also got to import, to protect somebody else. Who's really important? Well, that's the bridging part of it. <coughs> now, after all, that was why they were there. That's the whole point of it, yeah. Ray Sykes and John Lewindon were at the fore in trying to get close to the German positions to exact some revenge. And you're going to say what Corporal John Lewindon, 18 platoon, says. We had to get as near as we could and try and get them out of there. I was quite close to Ray Sykes. 
The Germans couldn't see us. The only thing we could use was grenades. We managed it. We certainly moved them. The trouble was we got to the point where we nearly ran out of grenades. Somebody had the presence of mind to go back over the other side of the canal, pick out some more grenades and brought them back to us. That was really Ray Sykes' show. He thought of it, and I wouldn't take any credit for that. I just backed him up, that's all. Ray was decorated for that, and rightly so. Yeah, so they're using the, 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 uh, the, 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 the old bridge workings, uh, to, uh, whatever he called it, to, to, to hide behind, aren't they? Um, uh, that, that's, that's, that's all they could do. Now, meanwhile, there's no doubt that Ronald Elliot was one of those panicking. Few would have the heart to blame him. Uh, they were genuinely terrifying circumstances. Yeah, I'm absolutely with him on this. <laughs> there was a rush back to the river. I, I got into the river. It's a canal, but you understand that. Yeah. I, I got into the the, the river or, or was pushed into the river. Some people got into a boat. I found myself in the can- canal and not being a good swimmer. was in some danger of drowning. I got hold of the boat, which was floundering around, and someone either deliberately or unconsciously waved a paddle around and knocked my glasses off. Whether he was trying to knock me off the boat, I don't know, but I had no intention of being knocked off the boat. I hung on grimly. Meanwhile, pandemonium was still going on on the far bank. Some of the platoon were fighting back, and it wasn't a total retreat, but some small number had retreated, including me. Eventually, we got to the other side of the canal. I was soaking wet without my glasses. I didn't know where to go. Didn't know where the Germans were or anything. There was I, a pretty sorry sight, wandering around on the riverbank with the mosquitoes around, not able to see very far without my glasses, waving my Beretta, that's a small pistol, in the air, prepared to defend myself, although quite how and in what way wasn't very clear. And that's a great everyman quote. That's, you know, we all would like to think when we're young that we'd be heroes, but that's the reality for a lot of people in the shock and awe of war, isn't it? Yeah, and I can understand what he's saying about his glasses. I've always worn glasses, so when I was in the army, if I broke my glasses, I was useless. Well, I weren't that good with them. I was just going to say, could we have a little comparison between Gary with glasses and Gary without glasses? Now, the whole skirmish only took... See, professional. Only took about 10 minutes, after which the German patrol melted away. In the aftermath, Ray Sykes was awarded the Military Medal and John Lewindon was promoted to Sergeant for his exemplary conduct. In all, some 40 casualties had been suffered. Which is quite a lot out of, two, you know, uh, out of a company. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this is not the, the, the... We mentioned the series of uh, DLI patrols. There's lots of excitement there as well. What are they doing? What are the patrols doing? And why are they doing it, Gary? Why? Well, they, they check and recheck the ground uh, to to make the Volturno crossing. And they managed to identify the shallowest section where a crossing on foot was just about possible without the Germans noticing what was going on, because that's the quite important part of that. Well, give me a picture. I'm, I'm having trouble, you know, picturing the Volturno. Just well, it's a fearsome obstacle. Swollen by autumn rains, it was fast-flowing around four foot six inches deep and some 300 foot across. That's big. Is that about 100 yards? Uh, possibly, yes. I only deal in metres. I'm younger than you. All right, 100 metres? Yes. <laughs> now, Clark, that's the commander Mark of... Mark Clark, Mark yeah. Clark, planned for the 6th US Corps to attack on a two-division front, pushing for the high ground across the river. Now, meanwhile, the British 10th Corps would cross the lower Volturna with 56th Division attacking at Capua, 7th Armoured Division at Grazines, and the 46th Division between Cancelo and Castel Volturno. Now, the, the 139 Brigade have a conference on the 11th of October, and uh, Gen- uh, Colonel, Colonel, I promoted him a bit there, <laughs> uh, Colonel Johnny Preston briefed his company commanders, and he warned them to be ready to move forward from the debussing point at 1700 on the night of 12th, 13th, 12th, 13th October. Well, A and C companies, they would wade across the Volturno at the shallowest point and establish a firm base. They would be followed by the battalion headquarters, then B&D companies, which were charged with pushing on to cut the main coast road. The men were dressed in battle dress as the weather was too cold for khaki drill. Bill Ver remembered how they were loaded down, 
always a worry in a river crossing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, let, let's use his Sunday name, Corporal William Ver, uh, 12 Platoon B Company. Field service fighting order, your pouches for ammunition, your weapon, your small pack with all your gear in it, your shaving kit, your towel, soap, mess tins and your emergency rations. Your entrenching tool, water bottle, bayonet. Your heaviest thing was, was your ammunition. I had 10 magazines of Tommy gun ammunition. They were fairly heavy. The lads also had Bren gun magazine. It all adds to your weight. They had the rifle, somebody had the Bren gun or, or, or the Piet. So, uh, uh, and what, when people go on about, wow, that's too heavy, uh, what would you leave behind, Gary? Well, exactly. What are you going to leave weapon, behind? Your entrenching tool. Your ammunition. Your, I your mean, ration. the ammunition's the heaviest thing in his kit. He says that. Yeah. Going to leave that behind then. Going to leave the water ration, well, you, you know, emergency rations. It, it, the, the real, you, ha- you have it. I mean, I suppose the small pack, but... Your soap. Yeah. Now, they, they reached the, uh, the the river safely. Uh, a Company is right in front, uh, commanded by Major John Morant, who we haven't mentioned before. And they had this grim... Oh, can you imagine it lying in front of them, Gary? So swirling cold water, nearly five foot deep, 100 metres across. And uh, right at the forefront, who was there? Who was this giant of a man leading the way? Can you remember how tall he was? Uh, well, this is Second Lieutenant Russell Collins of A Company, and I believe he was um, five foot one. Yeah, something like that. Might be five. He's early five foot. And he says this. Then, with my platoon leading, we had to make the first crossing. We hoisted our packs up as high as we could on our shoulders, put our rifles in our outstretched arms above our heads, and the first few of us waded into the river. Ray Mitchell must have established the depth of it, but it was certainly up to my armpits, if not my shoulders, being a rather shorter chap. We had to take a rope across and secure the rope at the far end. Then the boats were brought up. People following on behind came in the boats. The whole company got across. While we were crossing, the Germans weren't aware of our presence. At least there were no signs that they were aware. Yeah, now, uh, when you get to the other side, there's one thing people often forget about that. When you get to the other side of a river, what what problem can lie in front of you? Well, they've got to struggle up the steep bank, and yeah. bear in mind it's they're not wet. Easy. And carrying all that stuff. So they're slipping and sliding, but at least there wasn't the dreaded rattle of machine gun bursts that could have swept them away in moments. And Collins and his men then move forward. And this is, once more, 2nd Lieutenant Russell Collins of A Company. We found, out, we found out, to some extent, controlled by word of mouth, and our first objective was a high dike, 200 to 400 yards to the north of the river. It seemed like a mile, because when we were about halfway across, somebody behind us fell into the river and cried out. That alerted the Germans. <clears throat> Suddenly, we found all along the dike were machine gun posts. We came, <clears throat> we came under machine gun... I'm getting emotional. We came under machine gun fire as we were crossing the flat ground. One of my young soldiers, Anderson, was badly hit. He felt he was dying, mortally wounded. I was kneeling beside him, and he was giving me a message to give to his girlfriend. We were still trying to get on, just making our way forward. We managed to get under the lee of the dike. Sergeant Major Wilson was as cool as a cucumber. Whenever he got an order, he always said, Very good, sir! Major John Morant was a bit laconic, and he said, Sir, Major, sir, I've been hit. Wilson said, Very good, sir. We were in such numbers that the enemy probably withdrew to a concentration area. Now, right, what's going on behind them? What, what, what is this strange, what, the, the crying out from the river? Well, Tony Sacco uh, um, was, uh, was still in the water when this drowning's drop. Well, he's not drowning. He's panicking, soldier. I don't blame him. Again, panicked. <laughs> panicking, soldier. Panic, Gary. Um, uh, the, the, the leading men, remember, they've tied these ropes uh, and, and they're clinging on to them. And this is what signaler Tony Sacco. He's also in A Company, said. We were, we were crossing. Great. Not making a sound. I was up to my neck holding onto this rope. The slopes to get up to the on top, you've never seen mud like it. It was shiny black. It looked like coal tar. Those who managed to get on the top had to pull you up. We were covered in this black slime, but we didn't make a sound crossing. Further, further up, they were crossing in dinghies. Suddenly, this lad started screaming. He was a cockney. No, lad. <laughs> we got all sorts. 
after such <laughs> sorry he was screaming I'm drowning I'm drowning I'm drowning he must have woken the whole German up German army up somebody was saying drown you bugger drown <laughs> I love the prejudice against Cockneys, which uh, just slightly emerges there. Would you not have said? Mm. Now, everybody heard the shouts, but it's nice to recall that the man who lost his nerve would survive his terrifying experience. He would also overcome the initial scorn of his comrades because these men knew what it was to be afraid. And at that point, we'll just take a short break. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Now, one of the people crossing that uh, that river that night was Corporal Edward Gray of 21 Platoon D Company. Yeah, and this is a continuation of that story. And, and, and I like this because, well, it, it, it shows that, that there is some understanding, just as you said before we, the break. Well, <clears throat> it, it's a contrast to the views of, of Tony Sacco, isn't it? It is, yes. And this is Corporal Edward Gray, uh, D Company. One of the Cockney lads from 70th uh, DLI, reinforcement draft, that's what, yeah. He must have been terrified of water because the canvas boat capsized and he started screaming for his mother. He woke the whole front up. The cherries started blazing away. If it hadn't been for him, we'd have got over all right. But he must have been a brave lad because he stood all the derision. He stuck with the battalion to the end. And I think, you know, that, that, that's quite... It says a lot about his character, actually. Yeah, so he'd had a bit of a kerfuffle. He also says about the men who understood what it was like. They, as you said, they understand what fear's like. You can crack sometimes and then basically be all right. You do your job. And uh, I think that's a, an interesting diversion. Anyway, back to the main story. Uh, Collins, that's you, uh, he'd, uh, he'd indicated <clears throat> that the shouting had woke the guns up. The Germans. Germans. Uh, they, they, they've been woken from their slumbers and the, their machine guns uh, start going bang, 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 bang. Uh, but they're flying blind, firing blind, because it's dark. Uh, what else opens up? The Nebelwerfers, they also open up, but they're firing on a pre on prearranged targets. Aha! But they get it wrong, don't they? Because that's not where the Durhams are. No. Uh, now, behind the leading companies, as we mentioned before, comes B and D companies who once across they pushed out to the flanks of the bridgehead. Would that be left and right flanks? That would be established by the two assault companies. By this time the Germans were beginning to realise exactly what was happening and the accuracy of the fire was ramped up. 
Well, I suppose it's getting lighter. And this is Corporal Tom Turnbull of B Company. We were getting hit right, left and centre with machine guns. Jerry was firing on fixed lines, sweeping this field. We were crawling in this open field. The lad next to me was behind a Bren and he inched his way up to stretch his back with lying down all the time. So he's saying his back's hurting because he's been laying there. As he stretched up, a burst of tracer hit him. It seemed as if it was going in and dropping out at his back, the tracer. I'll never forget it. He went down. They started shouting for stretcher bearers. And when they crawled towards us, I said, it's no use, he's dead. I heard him die, the rattle. A lad called Private Tuck. The lads on the other flank, one of our sections, put the machine gun out of action with grenades, while our section gave them covering fire when they went in. We went over these fields and we came to a dried up canal. We always seemed to be bloody unlucky, our section of our platoon. We got sent on another patrol to find a road across the canal. Another patrol had been across and come back and said that there was nothing along there. So they sent us. We just got about two or three hundred yards and a jerry came over the bankside. He says, Achtung! He practically said, Share that amongst you. We watched the grenades come over our heads and it hit three of the last lads in the patrol. One was wounded about the face and one of the corporals lost his heel and the other lad, it was his 19th birthday the day before, and it had shattered his arm. We got them and naturally we had to get back. We fixed them up and then we dug in till first light. Now, uh, Ken Lavelle, Lovell, stop it! <laughs> he, he finds himself, he finds himself, he's dug in on the reverse slope of a dike bank and he was under harassing fire from an unknown number of German snipers. One thing I want to explain is, sometimes people say, why don't you have a map showing exactly where that dike bank is? And the answer to that is uh, Lovell didn't know either. If you, do you see what I mean? There's this one problem with oral history. You can't always put it on a nice, neat map. Anyway, uh, he's been ha harassing fire. Uh, he, German snipers. He didn't know how many. And next to him, close by, was his mate. And his mate was Lance Corporal Bill Crumack, who came from Leeds. And this is what Lovell says. We came under a lot of sniper fire. We lost a few men killed and wounded. It was very difficult to say the number of snipers because it, it could have been one or two moving about. However, however many were sniping, they were good at their job. We never had a pinpoint which we could saturate with fire. One poor fellow, he went to answer the call of nature, had dropped his trousers, more or less finished his business, and he got a bullet right through both cheeks of his arse, and he fell back in his own mess. It was evidently a most painful wound as well. He shouldn't smile, sorry. Ray Sykes, a platoon sergeant, he's a bit of a hero, doesn't he? Because his second time he's coming out, had put two chaps in a slit trench on the forward slope of the bank. It must have been a very lonely position up there. My great pal... Bill Grummock, in whose section they were, went up to see they were all right. He went up over the top of the bank, about four or five foot wide, crawled down to them. Yes, they were all right. Instead of sliding down, he stood on top of the bank. The next thing I heard was a single shot. Bill came down, clutching at his equipment. He'd, been ob he'd obviously been hit. He virtually fell into my arms, trying to undo his belt to take his equipment off. All he had time to say was, Mother, mother, and he was dead. Bill was the chap who taught me never to stand on the skyline. I thought it was a shocking trick of fate that this had happened. And this is the thing. Uh, people t teach you, but they make the one mistake themselves. And that's it. I, I found that very sad. I, I, I remember being quite affected by that story. By about 0400, the 16th DLI had gained some of their objectives. But they were still... Uh, being severely harassed by German machine guns located on their right flank. Right flank. Now, Colonel Preston, he's, uh, he's got his headquarters in some nice pink farm buildings. I like the fact that we know they're pink. Uh, and he ordered Russell Collins to lead a fighting patrol to pinpoint and take out these German uh, machine gun strong points. Uh, this, this is what... Well, we've heard from Russell Collins many times before, but this is the beginning uh, where he establishes his reputation. This is a great story. And you're going to tell us as Second Lieutenant Russell Collins. There was a pocket of enemies some few hundred yards to the east who were holding up progress. I was to go and try and sort it out. I got up onto a high vantage point where I saw John Smith, who was the mortar officer. I quickly conferred with him told him that I was going to have to attack and I really didn't know what to expect. 
This tall dike, 20 or 30 feet high, had ditches on either side. I quickly made a little plan that I would take a number of men, perhaps half my platoon, and go along the dry channel beside the dike, which afforded cover from view. I said, right, I'm going to move along the dike. You put down six rounds rapid, just six, no more, no less, and then we'll go in. I hadn't pinpointed the machine guns, but the mortar officer had seen them. And I mean it was by guess and by the grace of God, really. I just said, right, fix bayonets. Everybody lined up behind me and I set off. Now, this, this, is, this is more than dangerous. He's not really certain of the position. He's advancing across. He's not properly covered. Uh, if the Germans, uh, well, what could have gone wrong? Just about everything could have gone wrong. Anyway, undaunted, Russell Collins leads his patrol forward. And this is what he says. Down came these six bombs. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then we were up and run full tilt. About 100 yards on, there was a junction in the gullies, one going off at right angles in a northerly direction. Just as I arrived at that point, I saw the last German's backside disappearing into the bunker. They'd got bunkers dug into the walls at the end of the dike. I'd got them absolutely like rats in a trap. They hadn't even time to turn round and look out of their foxholes. I was right up upon them and in total command of where they were. I just called on them to come out and of course they had no choice because I was standing there with my weapon in the entrance. I winkled them out one at a time. They came trooping out, officers, NCOs. It turned out to be the company headquarters. I quickly gave orders for these chaps to be disarmed and we just shunted them out one by one with their hands above their heads. Now this, <clears throat> this is a fantastic success, Gary. They'd captured three officers three warrant officers and 11 other ranks, plus several machine guns, loads of ammunition. And what might have happened to that ammunition? What do you think might have been, what, what, where do you think that's good? Well, it stops it being fired at the Durhams or now, anybody else. Now, do you think Collins put this down to his brilliant planning? Uh, probably not. He put it down to chance, I think. Yeah. So what does he say? I was as lucky in that as I was unlucky at Salerno. There's a big element of luck in these things. I mean, the bombs could have fallen on us or I could have got there and it might have been bomb-proof or they might have just been 50 yards further down waiting for us as we come round the corner. But it was a good plan, directly and confidently well executed and it just happened to work absolutely like a dream. Now, he's making the point there, isn't he, that, that whilst he had a plan and, he, and, he, and he, had, plan. he had confidence in that plan, it did need a large element of luck. Yep. And he accepts that. Uh, now, this success, and it was a success, it gave, he was given the nickname of Winkler. So in the battalion, he was known as Winkler Collins because he winkled them out of strong points. Uh, and he would do it time and time again. And through the rest of this uh, podcast series and, and through my book, Volkslogger, we follow the adventures of Winkler Collins uh, and, and also look at how he, he, he matures and eventually becomes almost nervous, uh, despite being obviously a complete hero. Um, now, how, how, so that we know what a platoon, we know what the battalion's doing. What's happening in the bigger thing, the scene? Because really, the Durhams are just one small part of the picture, aren't they? Well, overall, uh, 10th Corps had mixed success in the Volturno crossings, but the success of the American attacks further east, that meant that the Germans had little option but to fall back. Now, the Durhams spent some time just holding the line they'd taken, patrolling ahead to the flanks. Uh, and, and when the rest of 46th Division come across the Volturno, the battalion gets sent back for a, a nice resties at a place called Casaluta. Um, so so uh, is that it? Is that the last river before they get to Monte Cassino? Well, we know it isn't. What's next? Well, the next river that barred the way to Rome was the Tiano River, a tributary of the Volturno. On the 25th of October, the 16th DLI moved forward to take up positions around Franolis, about 10 miles to the northwest of Capua. Where that, the, I've heard that before. That was where the Americans came across, wasn't Yeah, it? they stormed across the Volturna there. Now, this time, there was far less chance to thoroughly patrol the uh, approaches to the riverbanks. Now, at dusk on 29th of October, 1943... 
<laughs> the 56th Division would attack the town of Tiano and then push east into the foothills leading up to the mountainous heights of San Croce. Meanwhile, our brave lads in 46th Division were on the left with 139 our particular interest, charged with carrying out the assault over the Tiano. This would begin with the crossing of the 2nd 5th Leicesters, that's another bunch, on the left uh, at 1830, to be followed by the 16th Durham Light Infantry on the right at 1900, i.e. half an hour later. Uh, who, who's covering them? Fifth Sherwood Foresters. So, firing across the river. Now, crossing a river's always intimidating. Not kidding. But C Company led the way and were unmolested before spreading out to form a defensive screen. It's all pretty quiet then. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, although there were considerable problems with German booby traps. We're not talked about that. Perhaps we'll try and talk about that when we've got more time. But booby traps are an increasing problem. When the Germans retreat, they can set them. Now, D Company was next across, and they began to move forward on the right of C Company. They too were plagued with the booby traps, but then 18 platoon was hit by heavy bursts of machine gun fire as they pushed forward. And this is Corporal Robert Ellison of 18 platoon. What did he say, Gary? We had reached this farmhouse, and we were giving the instructions to cross this open ground. It was black dark, but you visualise a field with trees around the edge and the far side, three sides. We were to go over and get through the wood at the other side. We went forward in arrowhead formation under horrendous machine gun fire. I thought, well, somebody's got to knock this out. I went forward to lob grenades into this area where the machine gun was. The last I knew there was the sergeant was telling us to retreat back because we were being overpowered. Then, bang, and I was out. I don't know whether it was a shell or mortar or whatever. I was not injured by shrapnel. It was blast more than anything. It blew me back towards a tree. That's where I hurt my back. They thought I was out, dead. Jack Clapworthy said, I wasn't. He and I were always together right through the war. He got shot through his arm, helping me out of this situation. He got us back to the farmhouse where the medics were. (coughs) Again, I'll point out, one, somebody's got to do this. And he don't want to, but he does it. He goes forward and tries to use his grenades. And then again, I'm sure Jack Clapworthy didn't want to get shot through the arm, rescuing his mate. But he still did it. And it's his mate. And, and that's emphasising, you know, the brotherhood amongst them. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, in, in those few moments, just that little, that one instant you've just so brilliantly described, um, uh, one, that's a gesture you're making now, uh, one man was killed and 18 were wounded. Uh, Ellison woke up in an American hospital back in Tunisia uh, and he was medically downgraded to... Uh, B1, and he never manages to rejoin the 16th DLR. They all wanted to. It's strange, but they, why would they want to rejoin their own battalion where they might get killed? Why? They're mates. They're mates. Now, despite the German machine guns, the Durhams managed to get forward and reached and consolidated their objectives some 500 yards from the river. The German positions were overrun. Now, behind them, the sappers are, are working with bulldozers. Uh, what they're doing is they're flattening out the riverbanks, which are steep, so to allow some 16 Sherman tanks who are coming up in support to get across the river. And this is what Lieutenant Ronnie Sherlaw of C Company says. This was the first time we'd ever, we had ever worked with tanks. Pl- yes, the plan was... The plan was that the tanks would go in first and we would come up behind them. We discovered that being close to the tanks was the worst thing in the world because in going for the tanks, the German shells found us. So we let the tanks go over on one side and we went on the other side. We let the tanks soften the Germans up and then we moved in separately from them. And I've heard this from so many infantry. They don't like being with tanks. But actually, tanks and infantry and artillery have to work together. And this is the sort of thing that in Normandy... 1944, they'd sort out. You might remember with the 54 fires, uh, they had to learn how to. They, the infantry have to stay with them. Yes, yeah, so if you'd like more uh, about fighting uh, in tanks, then Burning Steel by Peter Hart is available from all good bookshops. I'll give over. <laughs> now, during the advance that followed, there was an amusing exchange back at the headquarters 46 Division, which was overlooking the battleground from Front Solis. Here, Major General John Hawksworth was monitoring the progress of the battle as light dawned on the morning of the 30th of October, 1943. 
<laughs> the Colonel of the Durhams took great pleasure reporting what was said. And this is Lieutenant, Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Preston of the headquarters company. The divisional commander surveyed the battleground. There were the Sherman tanks. <laughs> Where were the Durhams? <laughs> Jones, can you see the Durhams? Answer, no, sir. A pause of five minutes. Jones, can you see the Durhams? Answer, no, sir. <laughs> They're probably making use of ground and cover. <laughs> Jones knew the Durhams well and had read some infantry textbooks. A pause of ten minutes. Jones, can't you see the Durhams yet? Answer, no, sir. Those tanks are very slow, aren't they? <laughs> An effort to divert attention from the Durhams. Jones was a very loyal officer. <laughs> a, a five-minute pause. Jones, have a good look and see if you can see the Durhams. Answer, no, sir. They're probably on their objective. They generally get their objective. Full marks for loyalty and devotion. A final pause and then, Jones, where are those wretched Durhams? And uh, the, 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 the story, uh, I mean, uh, Jones is an, uh, an ex-Durham, by the way. I perhaps should have mentioned that first, hence the loyalty. But um, I love that story. And uh, the, the, what, there's a follow-up because it's not until March 1945, so sort of a year and a half later, that Press, Johnny Preston has the nerve to tell the somewhat irascible Hawksworth that the battalion had taken great pride in being the wretched Durhams. And what, can you imagine what a great nickname that is? It is a great nickname. Now, the War Diary rightly noted in a section entitled Lessons to be Learned on Crossing the Tiano that if you are to work with tanks, previous training should be given. <laughs> and I think that sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, uh, however, the, the Durhams... The 16th DLI, they had taken their objectives, and overall, the operation was a success. Uh, the, cost, the crossings consolidated, and the advance resumes. What are the Germans doing? Are they retreating with no hope or re rhyme or reason? No, they fall back to their next line of defence. Now, on 2nd of November, the forward elements of the 46th Division and the 7th Armoured Division reached the coastal plain, where uh, what would be on that? The, the next, the, what's next? Uh, the flooded Garigliano River, thanks pretty, for that. Sorry, pretty good effort there, Gary. was a formidable obstacle, dominated as it was in land by the inhospitable mass of the Monte Camino range. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, in front of Monte Cassino. Uh, uh, and we don't, this, this podcast series doesn't touch Monte Cassino. Monte Camino becomes the focus for the 16th year. Now, once again... There's trouble in store for the men of the 16th DLI. And boy, is there trouble on Monte Camino. Uh, it's a phenomenal story. I urge you to l tune in and listen. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, thank you very much, Gary. It's been excellent. And uh, and just think about those Durhams fighting away across those rivers and, and the hills. Uh, it, it, it seems so long ago, and yet it seems so close. Um, I don't know. It's not that long ago. Well, it is, but... It's not. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast 
for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?